Well, good morning again. We are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And we are celebrating a, the moment when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the north door of the Wittenberg Cathedral or City Church in Germany. Many of you might be bored by that topic, and as I was thinking about how I would talk about this particular topic this week, I thought, you find this interesting, no one else will. Don't get up there and bore the church to tears. And so, that's always a difficult task. How do you take something like this and talk about it to the church? And as we were listening to this song right before I got up to speak, my sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. The hope of Reformation theology is that single truth. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the north door of the Wittenberg church, the angst of the day was one that was perpetually manipulated by the Roman Catholic popes on a teaching of purgatory. There were seven ways that a person could be made right with God. That is, after all, the essential question of human existence. We know we are sinful. The question is, who is the authority and what must we do to please Him? And men and women were constantly manipulated by the Pope in order to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so the Pope did something rather ingenious. It's something that the church and that many organizations have been guilty of through history, and that is they manipulate people over fear. Indulgences was at that time something that could be purchased from the Catholic Church in order to get loved ones from purgatory into heaven. And so the Roman Catholic Church taught that a person was saved, yes, by the graces of God. Those graces were things like marriage. They were, uh, they were confession. It was uh, confirmation, last rites, things like this. And if you did these things, you would, you would continuously earn more grace from God. But that's counterintuitive. How can you earn grace? Grace is something that cannot be earned. And... A good monk like Martin Luther simply took 95 questions hoping to have a debate and nailed them to the north door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. He had no intention to ever start a reformation of this sort. He thought he was inviting a good debate concerning whether or not the selling of indulgences was consistent with the Word of God. Rather innocent question. He wasn't trying to be contentious or to fight against the Pope. Very simple thing that he did. You know, we think that when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the door that he was making a declaration, but many times when someone wanted to have a debate, it was like posting it on Facebook. That's all it was. That was their Facebook. You go to the church, you nail it on the door. Now, I would suggest you use Facebook and don't do that here. But he simply nailed 95 Theses to the door. And they were, all they were were questions about, it was actually defending the Pope, questions about whether or not indulgences were really taught in Scripture. And he assumed something that the world had never assumed. And it set the world on fire. And it was this question. Who is the final authority in the church? Is it the vicar of Christ, the Pope? Or is it the Word of God, the Bible? In 1521, April, on a Wednesday, he was brought in in the city of Worms, spelt like worms, for a hearing. The Pope had brought him in, the Emperor had brought him in, and it was a spectacle in just three years 
Roman Luther had become a man of great importance in Germany. There were thousands of people lining the streets as he was led into the diet of worms, which was nothing more than a hearing. And he stood there, and the emperor asked him a question. You see these books right here? They were his books. He said to him, Do you believe or agree with the things that are written in those books? And Martin Luther said, historically, in a great way, I need a day to think about it. He thought he was going to be able, given the opportunity to defend what was written in his books. They didn't give him an opportunity to defend it. They had made up their mind it was wrong. And the only thing they were there for was to hear whether or not he was a heretic or not a heretic. At that point, he knew what was going to happen. It was going to be his death. And they brought him in the next day, and they asked him the same question. And here was his answer on the second day. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. What bravery it took to say those words which went his certain death. All he ever hoped for was to reform the church. Was to make the bride of Christ a pure bride of Christ. God give us more Martin Luthers today to purify the church. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you sent imperfect men to purify your church. You have always drawn straight lines with crooked sticks. You delivered your people from Egypt by the hands of a murderer. The man that is said to be after your very heart is guilty of not only rape, but of putting together and orchestrating the death of her husband. Paul, the very man that took the gospel to the Gentiles, people like me, my heritage of non-Jewish lineage that accepted Christ, owes it all to a man who at one time persecuted the church even unto death. Lord, we're not asking for perfect people we are asking you to draw straight lines with imperfect people. We are asking you to do your work again. Lord, we see that your church has once again a great need for reformation. We have taken the name of Christ and we have changed the definition and the meaning of that today. And Lord, it is my prayer that you would ripen the fruit, that you would give us a harvest of truth, that you would give us the harvest of souls as men and women are unflinchingly committed to the truth of your word. It is my prayer that you will bring us another 500 years of Christian, true Christian reformation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought, what better way for us to honor the Reformation than to talk about the chief principles of the Reformation? It was not merely a historical time or an, a moment in history. It was not merely that. It certainly was that. But it left with us great traditions of Christianity. And I want to talk about those traditions this morning. They have been called the five solas. Many of you will remember that we spoke in the... Uh, earlier in the year about the five solas. What I want to do this morning is I want to simply review those and I want to give an update on how we as a church are committed to those five solas. Now, I use the word we, meaning me and you. Not me and the pastors. I mean me and all of you. 
We must all be committed to the same things. How can two walk together? How will we ever be effective unless we're in agreement? And so it is my hope and my goal that you will embrace these five solas as we as a ministry have embraced these. So together, these are our rallying cries. Number one, we are committed to the doctrine of sola scriptura. The word sola is simply the Latin for one or alone or only. Scriptura is simply scripture, sacred writings. And we hold that there is only one book that is a sacred book called the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books separated into two covenants. The old covenant consisting of 39 books consisting of the Pentateuch, which are the first five, the history, the writings or the wisdom and poetry, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The New Testament is consisting of 27 books. And it is starting, and in the basis of it is the Gospels, moving into the history of Acts, the Pauline epistles, which are 13, the book or anonymous letter to the Hebrews, the general epistles, and then finally the Apocrypha, which is the book of Revelation. And these only, those only, those 66 books alone, no other book, not the Bhagavad Gita, not the Quran, not alleged hidden books of the Bible that you see on the History Channel. None of those books are Scripture alone. We are committed to Scripture alone. But Scripture alone means more than that. Listen to what the Reformers said about the Bible. When the Bible speaks, said Martin Luther, we assuredly believe that God Himself speaks to us. When Scripture speaks, we believe it is God speaking to us. John Calvin said, In order that true religion may shine upon us, we ought to hold that it must take its beginning from heavenly doctrine and that no one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine unless he is a pupil of Scripture. What this means is that no matter what your pastor preaches or an alleged prophet or an alleged apostle had a dream about, if that is not consistent with the Word of God, it is not from God. Whatever doctrine may be propagated or put on to our various social medias or talked about around the water cooler, if it cannot be firmly established in Scripture, you are not bound to it. Only Scripture, because of its heavenly source, has the right to bind your conscience, but indeed it does have the right to bind your conscience. The Word of God is true. It is God's word to his people. It is God's sword. It, as the word of God says itself, it is a two-edged sword. It pierces us. It divides joint and marrow. It divides piercing us to our spirit. It is able to be a critic of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It is there to challenge us. It is there to see the glory of God and the sinfulness of humanity so that we might receive the grace of Jesus Christ. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which we hold to, believes this. It says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible, that means without failure, rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. If a person is going to be saved, they must be saved by the Word of God. They must be saved by the gospel message. Paul said if anyone were to teach anything contrary of the word of God, even, listen to me, even if an angel of heaven were to appear in your bedroom in the middle of the night and were to rebuke this word of God, Paul said let that angel be eternally damned. Because God's word never changes God's word never changes. 
Paul said, even if I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, were to change the gospel I once preached to you, let me myself be eternally damned. Because the word of God never changes. Scripture itself says this. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. Not some of it, all of it. You say, even the parts that talk about the world being created in six days, and there being a man, and there being one woman, and them eating a fruit, and falling from grace, and a man building a boat, and putting all the animals in it, and there being a floody, floody, all of that being true? Yes. You tell me, intellectual, does the lost world or secular world have a better explanation for where we came from? Nothing plus no one equals everything? I'm not a mathematician, as uh, Andrew Gray pointed out yesterday in our Bible study. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, but I know this. Nothing plus no one equals nothing. Not everything. Scripture is inspired, it is infallible in every part. So it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. That means it has the right to tell you that's not right. Correcting, saying do this instead of that. And training, saying now live this way. So that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. Scripture establishes the parameters of Christian practice. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Oh, listen to me. If you want to be delivered from your guilt and from legalism this morning, do not go beyond what is written. I will tell you that probably 90 to, 90 to 95% of my counseling is dealing with people who have gone beyond what is written. Guilt that has been heaped on them from legalistic teachings that are not found in the Word of God. And Paul says, I warn you, church, do not go beyond what is written. Let God's word simply be yes and yes and no and no. And rest in it. Many of us will struggle with guilt because we have not received the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we want to go beyond it. Yeah, but I'm really bad. There is therefore now no condemnation. Don't go beyond what is written. This is our commitment to Scripture. As food is essential for the health and the life of the body, so too is the Word of God essential for health and life of the Spirit. Jesus told Satan when he was in the desert being tempted, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's not to say this isn't Jesus taking on bread. We all love Cuban bread, right? Is there anything better than a hot loaf of Cuban bread? My dad would go down, we'd get two loaves of Cuban bread from the Cuban bakery down at the end of our street. We do it several times a week. This is before we knew about carbs. We'd do it several times a week, and we'd always get two loaves, one so that we could eat on the way home, and then one so that we could share when we got home. That was our dirty little secret. Jesus' point is not anti-bread. It is pro the meaning of life, that the Word of God is what we live by. That is the thing that keeps us spiritually alive. The body is passing away. There will come a day where you can eat all the bread you want and you will not be able to escape the reality of your death. But the word of God shall never pass away. His truth endures forever. 
Scripture was used as a means to fight off satanic and demonic influence. When the world around you is compelling you and telling you you're not righteous, when it's telling you you're guilty, when it's telling you your God has failed you, Scripture will be your comfort. It will be your sword. Be committed to Scripture. This is what Christ did. Ephesians 6.10-12 through 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he finally tells us all of the different parts of the armor of God, but finally our weapon is the word or the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Listen to me, church. The Holy Spirit does not, listen to me again, I want to, I want to say this very carefully, the Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Word of God. They work in tandem. No, but I really feel the Spirit's telling me to divorce my spouse. He, he isn't. I am, but, but, but I don't know, but I had a dream. Listen to me. Listen to me. That dream was bad Taco Bell. It has nothing to do. You say, how can you be so certain? You weren't there. You weren't in my mind. I have the word of God, which says what God has joined together, let no man separate. I don't need a dream. You would be surprised at how many people want to talk to me about their dreams. And I understand how those dreams can impress upon you a very, very real reality. But Scripture is certain. Thy word is truth. Scripture was used to prove the truthfulness of preaching. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, and these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How do we know they were more noble? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. When you sit down and you watch Christian television, you ought to sit there with a Bible. There's this thing in the back called a concordance. A concordance. You ought to sit there and say, okay, let's see, if I give a hundred I'm going to get back a thousand. Let me see. Hundred. Hundred. Where does the Bible promise that? I don't see it. Guess what? Then it's, as, it's worth, that information is worth as much. I won't say what it was worth. Let's just, it's false, okay? Let's leave it there. It's false. The Word of God is what... Pre tells us whether or not the preacher's right. So it tells us whether or not we're right. We have a standard. I'm getting into woodworking, and I am certain that I am an obnoxious pest to my wife right now. I tell her about dovetails and mortise and tenon jigs. He doesn't care about any of that. But one thing I know is that an, a craftsman is only as good as his tools. And he is only as good as his measurement. The tools depend on the measurement. He takes out what's called a, a square. A, a, a square will tell him this is what an inch is. And he doesn't get the right to say, I, I had a dream last night about what an inch is. He takes that square and he puts it down next to the wood and he draws the line and now he has his inch. Here's the standard of what an inch is. That's actually what the word canon means. Canon of Scripture. That's how the Greeks would measure things. Canon simply was a reed, a papyrus reed, and it had an exact measurement. And they would measure things by these reeds. And this was the standard. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, we are saying, if I want to know whether or not what a person is teaching me is true, I go to the Word of God. You ought to walk and live with this. You ought to have one that you can fit in your pocket. Most of you have smartphones. And anytime you hear something, you ought to say, now wait, brother or sister, let's see what does God's Word say. We are never to add to Scripture either. 
How are we as a church committed to sola scriptura? We are committed to a biblical worldview. That means that we believe that the Bible has the right to tell us and inform us what we believe on every subject in the world. It it has the right to inform us about theology, philosophy, ethics, your sex life, your dating life, how you spend your money. All of it. This is a biblical worldview. That when people see us, they will know we are people of the book because we are committed to an entire world of life view. We do not separate our lives between Saturday, Monday through Saturday, and Sunday. We were talking this morning about a local radio station that all through the week plays disgusting, hideous music. But on Sunday, for three hours, glory to God. Scripture affirms it, it permits you to think what you think. And it condemns you when you don't think it right. When you're in your bed alone at night and all of the lights are off and you are alone with your thoughts, Scripture has the right to say, that's sin, what you're thinking. That's a biblical worldview. We're committed to biblical preaching. That is that our preaching will be founded and grounded in the word of God. Biblical counseling. That is that we believe that the word of God has the ability to answer your greatest needs. Biblical training. That is that our men and our women and our children are to grow up knowing how to use the word of God. And finally and firmly, biblical obedience. This was called the material cause of the Reformation or excuse me, formal cause of the Reformation. This is what gave us or formed the debate around the topic of justification by faith alone. Where do we go for the answer? What was it that gave that man that confidence on that day to risk his own neck? I cannot go against Scripture. He was committed to sola scriptura. I ask you, are you committed to sola scriptura? We are also committed to sola fide, which simply means faith alone. Martin Luther said about this, that sola fide was the article by which the church stands, and without it, it falls. This doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without this doctrine of faith, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. John Calvin said, justification by faith is reconciliation with God, and this solely consists in the remission of sins. For if those whom the Lord hath reconciled to him are estimated by their works, they will still prove to be in reality sinners, while they ought to be pure and free from sin. Scripture tells us this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of you have a tendency to say, I'm a good person. Scripture, as we just learned, says you're not. Yeah, but my doctor says that the reason why I behave like this, that my doctor says I have a gene in my body that makes me a jerk. It's called a jerk gene. And I just take this medicine, and I'm no longer a jerk. My brother had a way of making me, giving me medicine that kept me from being a jerk. It was five pills, the pinky, the ring finger, the middle finger, the index finger, and the thumb. Bam! And repeat as necessary. Take often as needed. And that kept me from being a jerk. You say, yeah, but it's my culture. The reason why, if, if, things, if everything were different, man, if I just had a little bit more money, or if I had born, been born a different gender, or a different race, I'd be different. Things would be different. I would be, uh, the reason why I am who I am is everyone else's fault but my own. And Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. If you leave this morning justified, it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The good news, believer, is that as good or as bad as you ever will be, could be, the baddest of the bad and the best of the best are all justified the same way. By faith alone. We believe in faith alone. I am convinced that a Christian can never begin to live the Christian life until he or she is 100% committed to the belief of sola fide. Without a firm foundation that faith rather than works is what justifies the Christian before God, the Christian is doomed to a life of doubt and unfruitfulness in the ministry of the Spirit. When I went to Louisville, I was around all of these great men and these great thinkers and these great pastors who were committed to holy living. And I felt so inadequate. And I remember a pastor one of my professors, who was also a pastor, brought me into his office one day and I began to just open up and tell him in tears, I am so unworthy for this task of being a pastor. I am so guilty. I have sinned gravely. There was real contrition. I was ready to pack it up, come back and get a job at UPS. And forget the ministry. I couldn't do it. He said to me, while you've been carrying around all this guilt about your sin, how have you been living for others? How have you been living for God? He said, I haven't been living for God or others. In fact, I've hated God because I never could measure up. And in fact, I hated others they were always better than me. He said, then Satan is winning. Would you have Satan win this morning? No. Not consciously, not willingly. But yet, you're letting him win by guilting you into impotence. You're ineffective and unfruitful because you're guilty. You say, I'm never good enough I'll never be good enough to be used by God. Listen to me. You are so, so right. You won't be. But that's why we are committed to faith alone. Yes, see the terror of God's glory. Know the horror of your sin and taste the sweetness of His grace. We are committed to faith alone. What do we affirm by this? We deny some things when we say we're committed to faith alone. Number one, we deny that a person is made blameless and right in God's eyes by how good they are. We also deny that a person sins no matter how big or how little, that is, that there is no such thing as mortal or venial sins to those of you who were raised in a Catholic paradigm, no person's sins will ever deny their acceptance by God through faith in Christ alone. We have a tendency to watch the nightly news and compare ourselves to the people on the news and say, we'd never murder our family Therefore, we're a good person. Scripture says you're not. But the good news is that Scripture says that that person who did murder his whole family can be redeemed by faith alone too. It says the racist. It says the child abuser. The murderer and the drug dealer. The whoremonger and the drug addict can all be saved by faith in Christ alone, for God shows no partiality. When He looks at us, those who are justified, He will look to His Son, not to your sins. Praise God. We also deny that a person's good works 
no matter how great, are ever able to earn God's favor. Mother Teresa was an amazing woman. And if she died without accepting Christ by faith alone, she is not with God today. There are really good people. You will meet people in your life who are better than some of the Christians you know. I feel like that happens more frequently than it should. But their moral goodness is not what justifies them before God. It is His Son. And in Him alone, we stand. We deny that a person's good works. We deny that faith in anyone or anything is enough to save a person. People say, have faith. That's Oprah's favorite thing to say on her shows. You got you, Yeah, that per, that's a person of faith. Doesn't matter what they believe in, but they're a person of faith. Faith is only as valuable as the object in which it is placed. You can believe that if you kneel down on your knees and you genuflect to a potted plant, that it will give you what you want, but it is only in Christ, faith in Christ, that really answers anything. The world does that. Elijah said, they, you take from one piece of wood, wood, and you fashion for yourself a chair or a table, and then out of that same piece of wood that you sit your butt on and you eat off of, you make for yourself a God. You think it's going to answer you? The prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel were much more convinced that their God, Baal, could answer their prayers than many of us are convinced in our God. And yet, it was all for nothing. No matter how much you plead with any idol in your life, whether it be Baal or Budweiser, it will never, ever send fire to cleanse you from heaven. Christ alone saves we are committed to the doctrine of sola gratia, which simply means grace alone. C.S. Lewis was at a comparative religious conference one time, and he walked into a room, and men from all around the world, religious scholars, were debating why do people think that Christianity is so unique? Everything that it has is just like every other religion. Is there anything that's different about Christianity? And it got hot and people were getting angry and they were saying, yes, what about the resurrection? And people would say, no, there's other stories of resurrecting gods. And other people would say, yeah, but what about covenants? And they would say, yeah, but there are other stories of covenants. And what about uh, a Bible? Yeah, but other religions have a Bible. And C.S. Lewis walked into this cacophony of sound and they said to him he said what's going on and someone said we're trying to find out is there anything unique about Christianity and Lewis said that's easy it's grace grace I will give to you that other religions have similar things but what they don't have is a God who dies for his people what they don't have is a God who saves His people. They have gods that you can earn their favor. If you're just a little bit better, if you give just a little bit more money, if you wear the right clothes and do or don't shave your beard, if you kill these people, God will find you in favor. If you love him, he'll love you back. That is not the God of Scripture. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you listen to us sing in the Christian church, don't you hear excitement? It's because we worship the God of grace. Grace is nothing other than demerited favor. It's not unmerited favor. It's not that you haven't earned God's favor. It's that you've done everything to not earn it. And God says, here is my son. Here is my kingdom. The thing that separates Christianity from every other religion is that our God died for us on a tree. 
None of you went into the temple on that day and tore the curtain in two that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was nothing but God's hand Himself that separated our sinful state to His glory through the bridge that is the blood of His Son. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Not your grace. You have not earned what God has given you. Take it anyway and don't apologize for it. Many of you are living shackled lives, unconfident before God. Why? You say to yourself, because I'm unworthy to stand before a holy and righteous God, and you are exactly right, but that's why when Christ died, Matthew told us that the curtain was separated to bring an unholy people into the presence of a holy God through the shed blood of God's paschal lamb, Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, salvation is God's gift to unworthy human beings. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is a loving, gracious Father. We believe in solus Christi. That means Christ alone. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We have died with Christ. If we want to live in God's presence, it is in Christ alone. Nobody in that day with Noah had another boat. There was only one boat that would save, and that was Noah's ark. And if you wanted to be saved, you had to be in that vessel. If you want to be saved, you have to be in Christ alone. No other name is given under heaven whereby men will be saved. You say, that's so, that's so narrow-minded. It's so exclusivistic. What are you saying about my friend who's the Buddhist? What are you saying about my uncle who's a, 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 into Islam? What are you saying about my good, good, really good grandmother who makes cookies for me, but she doesn't believe in God? What are you saying about her? I am saying about everyone in this world If you are not in Christ, you are under God's wrath. Why would I forsake the commitment of men and women all over this Christian nation who risk life and limb to run into the hedges and into the highways and byways to preach that truth, who have forsaken everything in this life, all of the pleasures and comforts of living in America, to go and live in discomfort and risk their children's lives and education to simply tell people, you must be in Christ alone for salvation. Why would I shame their work by standing behind a pulpit, the easiest place in the world to proclaim God and deny that Christ alone is Savior? Christ alone is Savior. Take that message into your schools. Take that message into your homes. I have friends and family members who don't know Christ. Do you weep for them? Do you pray for them? Do you plead with them? Do you challenge them? No, because we don't like the thought that our loved one could be going to a devil's hell. I don't know about you, but the most compassionate thing you can do to someone who is on their way to destroying their life is tell them how to prevent that. Christ alone is the mediator. Scripture tells us as much. Jesus said to him, that is Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know you took a comparative religions class at FIU or Miami-Dade, and you heard this cute story about a mountain. And that there is a mountain, and there's only one top at that mountain, but there are many different ways of getting to the top, which, by the way, is most of the time completely untrue. Most of the time, the only way to get to the top of the mountain is one way. 
because people don't make many roads to get to one top. That doesn't even make sense in engineering schools. Who says, let's make several highways to the top of a mountain? And they say, well, we're all trying to get to God. We're just taking different ways of getting there. Jesus says, if you don't come my way, you ain't getting there. Stop saying whatever works for you is good. Jesus is not about working for you. He's about you working for Him. And you follow Him as the way, the truth, and the life. Or you don't get the Father. It was made this simple by John. He who has the Son has the Father. He who has not the Son has neither the Son nor the Father. Pretty simple. Solus Christi. Jesus is the only name given under heaven whereby men are going to be saved. John 20, 31, when John wrote his gospel, said this, All of these stories, all of these messages and proverbs and narratives are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is the only gospel unto salvation. Finally, we believe that all of this is for God's glory alone. When you think of our church, I want you to think about two arrows, one pointing away from you up to God and another pointing away from you over to others. That's what we're here for as a church. We are to live to glorify God and to live for helping and caring for others. How can we do that? Shouldn't we be concerned about our sins? I just got through telling you, Scripture tells us that it is by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone that you are saved. Now, live for God's glory. What is glory? Glory is God's worthiness and weightiness. You say, now wait a minute, now why should I be giving my life to God? Because He's given His life to you. For you. But wait a minute. I only respect those who respect me. Christ died for you while you were yet a sinner. Well, but you don't know how bad these people are. God forgave you an unpayable debt. Have you forgiven your neighbor their debt? Many of you are holding grudges. Many of you are giving nothing to others. And yet Christ has forgiven and given to you. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. John testified that the word had become flesh, it dwelt among men, and we, that is John and his people, have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The doctrine of soli deo gloria means that God alone is to be glorified for His gracious work of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To talk about worship as we have the past couple weeks, it is to emphasize this. We worship a God worth singing about. We worship a God worth dying for. We worship a God worth living for. We worship a God worthy of our everything. That's who we worship. Luther hated God. He hated God. It was said that he spent six hours at a time in confession, making sure that he had confessed exactly every little thing, for if he had forgotten even a single detail, he would leave unjustified by God. When he went to Rome, he went into many cathedrals. All of these cathedrals had relics from Christianity, and if they were to touch the relic, kiss the relic, pray to the relic, be presented in a mass of this relic, they were to receive more grace so that they would be forgiven. And he began to say, I just can never do enough to please this God. And I submit to you, it is only when you try your level best to please a perfect and holy God where you fall down on your face and you say, I can't do it. 
Be merciful upon me, God, for I am a sinner. The Bible tells us in that moment we go home justified to the glory of God. Finally, on this day, the Reformation is not over. One more principle of the Reformation is this. It is the Latin Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, and it means this. The church reformed, always reforming. Christians today, in honor of the Reformation, we must understand that our faith is not a static and dead faith. We are to always be reforming our lives and our church according to the Word of God. Our blood should be biblene. When we open our hearts, it ought to scream the words of God. Our lives ought to be molded completely after God's Word. We must never be tolerant of sin, but always drawing men and women back and children back to the doctrines of grace. We must never share the glory of God in Christ with another. Some of you are sharing God's glory today, and it is why there is so much darkness in your life. But give glory where it is due. Glory just simply means weightiness, what a person is worth. And in our worship, we demonstrate our heart's estimation of God's worthiness. Finally, we must have hearts of flesh, sensitive to the Spirit's leading as the Word of God teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us for every good work. Let us always be reforming. Let's pray. Father, what a great heritage you have given to us in the Reformation. Thank you for these brave men and women who risked their lives to bring us the truth of your word. Lord, many of us have seen today that we are not living in the spirit and in the truth of the Reformation principles. It is my hope and prayer, Lord, that these men and women here today would not only embrace these truths, but would stake their entire life on it that Your Word is truth, that salvation is by faith, through grace, in Christ, and it is all for Your glory. Lord, would that the American Christian and that the American church would die and allow Christ to reign. It is there where we are most free, and I pray for freedom in Christ alone. We love You, God. Amen.